and we are live for episode four of First Strike, sponsored by FaceToFaceGames.com. Quick reminder that this podcast is available on iTunes and on YouTube for later listening or viewing with timestamp, thanks to uh, our editor, Kyle Mathers. So today, who do we have on the show? We have the matchup that I was hoping for last week. We have Doug that is a bit less sick. How's it going, Doug? <laughs> no, we're recovering. We're getting there. I'm beating this strep throat, and uh, we're ready to, to take this week down. I'm pumped up. All right. And now we've got Brian, who told me that he overslept his RPTQ. What happened, Brian? It was real early in the morning, man. I would have had to get up at like 6 a.m., and I, uh, you know, I didn't fall asleep till like 3 a.m., and I knew there was the Moto one coming up, so I decided I would just play that instead. And then I went to a PPTQ and won that. So I guess it all worked out in the end. But Must be nice. Yeah. Uh, what were you ended up planning on playing for, for the modern RPTQ if you ended up playing? I, was gonna, I had uh, the Blue-Red Kiln Fiend deck built. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that was the correct choice. I don't even know if that deck is good. <laughs> But it was, I just, it's kind of like I gave up. I've given up on modern many times. I'm just like, all right, I guess I'm, this thing's kind of broken. I'll try that. Um, based on what I heard about the metagame, it probably would have been a pretty bad choice. So I'm, I, I guess I'm overall happy I overslept and uh, will now play this coming Saturday in the Moto P, or PTQ instead. All right. I'm, I'm expecting oh, good things, but I won't overhype it. Just I won't check. I won't check. Yeah, it don't literal. start tweeting when I'm like 1-0. Be like, oh, Brian's 1-0. He's going to take it down. <laughs> um, I know last episode, Doug uh, responded in, in our private group chat that he, he really wanted to say a lot of things and, and that uh, you guys did a good job. We're going to continue uh, a subject that Brian feels really strongly about, which is magic as an eSport, uh, et cetera. But I did want to go, before we go into some of the new stuff that, they've announced and are thinking of applying right, right from the get-go in the next one. I didn't want to ask a quick question because it's something as the, as the guy that lives on social media during these tournaments, a lot of people ask, why is it that one person who's on one team is wearing a different shirt than their team? Like, the, like Brian Kibler is the most common one. Like why is he wearing an SCG shirt if he's on Team Channel Fireball? Do you think actually think that is confusing for the casual fan? I'll start with you, Doug. Yeah, you know, I do think it's a bit confusing. Um, I, I do understand it. I mean, a common example that I think about instantly right now is Team Canada this year, where three of the members were rep by face to face, and they had awesome hoodies with their team name. Uh, but one of the members, Jacob, was uh, already under a sponsorship deal, so I believe from uh, from Channel Fireball. So they had different shirts, and I think it's a bit confusing and. Um, you know, I, I do understand that this is a bit idealistic, but I would love it if teams, you know, they wore their, their sponsors. They got sponsored by a team and they came together and they were doing this under the brand and, and there was incentives for these players, such as payment. And, and I think about other esports, and I know we've talked about Magic has a long way to go, but in other esports, these guys, they're wearing jerseys with their names on it, with their sponsors on it. And I think that it helps to really brand associate when you have this team over here and that team over there and this group of players over here. And, and it's great to see, you know, these brands like Haruya that are growing where you see that everywhere. There was a guy who top eight of the GP this weekend and he said in his bio he was a store owner and he was wearing a Haruya hoodie. So I thought that was kind of funny because he clearly doesn't own that store and he's still repping them. Um, and I do like the, the iconic aspect, but I, I would like to see it personally. And I think that it seems kind of, you know, big to impose it for a pro tour. Like, hey, you have to wear your team, but... These are the steps I think we have to make. So for the casual viewers, for the even experienced viewers who see a guy's shirt change and be like, wait, did he change teams? No, maybe he's just making 25 more dollars over on this side. I don't know. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see more brand unity. And especially for the World Magic Cup, like just rep your team, your country. Like, come on. I don't know. <laughs> this, this, like all things on the planet Earth, comes down to money, right? Like these these players are trying to eat together a living, trying to make it from event to event. Um, and, you know, the life of Magic Pro may seem glamorous from the outside. <laughs> it, it's, it's certainly not. I mean, these people are scraping together their pennies to get from event to event. And you have to get the money where the money is. And it's in these small sponsorship deals. You know, a lot of these stores pay a, a couple hundred dollars to wear their shirt. So regardless of your team unity, when you need to scrape together cash to make it to the next tournament, you're going to wear that shirt. 
I, I agree that it would be a nice thing for the casual viewer. It adds a little bit more uh, clarity to the situation. But there's also the fact that um, teams are not as structured currently as they are in other esports as you would expect them to be. I mean, there's a bunch of loose confederations that work together. Um, you know, there's a whole it's not like an esport where everyone has a team. You're now dealing with 50% of the field is completely unrepresented, right? Like they don't have anyone they're associating with. They're just working by themselves or they're testing with a couple of buddies from home. Uh, it might be that, you know, Channel Fireball worked mostly with themselves, but I talked a little bit with face-to-face or I know the last Pro Tour team I worked on was a, basically a, a New York City thing, but we reached out to Madison and we talked a lot um, with the people in Madison, Wisconsin about draft. So like, were we on the same team? I don't really think so. Uh, we talked a little bit with those guys about constructed, but it wasn't really like a unified team. And even within our New York team, there are splinters of people going off and testing with other groups. So these things just aren't as definite. You would like them to be. Um, if you if you want this to happen, if this is the goal of coverage to make these teams more clear cut, then Wizards has to take some steps. And I think we're going to get into that now. KYT, is that correct? We're going to get into that. Like, so Wizards has announced um, a while ago, and they've changed it a bit, the, the Pro Tour Team Series, where you get a group. Initially, it was a group of nine players, and you start counting points along the way. And, and the team, if you have nine players, and then at some point, like initially at the second Pro Tour, you only count like the top six. Mm-hmm. And basically, if you tabulate the points, um, if your team has the most points, you get to win. Uh, money depending on where, where you finish and and since then wizards have, have downsized that from from nine to six because some countries complained that it was going to be hard for for some places some smaller countries to have nine players whereas other people would have that so uh, on, on the website they say the pro tour team series is meant to incentivize existing pros to form more stable and professional teams around which we'll be able to create season-long narratives for magic fans um, to me my question is, and we already brought up this issue, is a lot of these teams, the, the struggle is, is that there is not, like, I think Wizards is trying to artificially form these uh, teams with these set numbers, and it's really hard. Yeah. People have to make these decisions based on uh, the store that they're already sponsored with, and it's like, it's hard for them to approach certain stores um, and, and go like, well, we want to be sponsored, but we have this guy who has an exclusive deal with Store X. And so it brings up all these issues that as a casual fan, when you first hear about these team announcements that you really don't think about, you really don't know that a lot of pros will have these issues and they might have to take a crappier deal overall because the store might be like, well, we have to give you less because you have that guy who, who's wearing a t-shirt deal. But overall, what do you think about this idea? I know I've just talked a lot with different issues, Brian, but uh, if you could go through it step by step or, or uh, talk yeah. about it on a smaller scale, that would be awesome. Sure. I, I think that um, this is an ambitious program. It's a worthwhile program. Uh, first of all, you need more meaningful matches in Magic. This helps create those meaningful matches. You know, uh, you'll have meaningful matches played up and down the standings, really, when you have these team points at issue. Um, and come the end of the season, it's going to create a lot of narratives, a lot of storylines. Uh, it's also going to create consistency. Consistency is a huge thing you have to establish when you're trying to make an eSport. It's this team versus this team. Oh, look, it's this team against this team again this year. You know, these are the two clear best teams in Magic, and now back-to-back years they're battling on the last day of the Pro Tour for supremacy. I mean, that's, that's a great story. Does the current system have some wrinkles? Sure. And Wizards has admitted it's a test run. They're going to have to take some time to iron out all these numbers. All the logistical things you're talking about are real concerns. But what this is, is growing pains. For Magic to evolve as an eSport, we're going to have to take some steps back. And we talked about this last week. Um, as it stands now, Magic predates, the Magic Pro Tour predates esports. Um, there has to be concessions to the format 
And these are the first of them. And for a little while, it's going to cause some hiccups and you're going to have these odd situations where people get kind of left out in the cold. Um, you know, maybe some friendships will be put to the test on whether or not people are included in teams. But on the whole, this is a huge positive for Magic coverage. And it just makes more interesting Magic for everyone. Like, how can you really hate on that? Like, more competitive, uh, a more competitive tournament scene, more money for the players. Again, that's a huge concern. They're putting more money out there. So wrinkles to start with, they'll iron them out. This will be a great addition to the Pro Tour. Yeah, my thoughts are... I should be on pro pro teams based on the fact that I just talked about saying that I want people uh, with, with with their teams represented by their shirts and all that. But I can't back this idea the way it is right now. And I know that it sounds to me like you're arguing is like, yeah, well, this is growing pains. We're going to get there. We're going to find something good and we have to go through this. But I, I just don't agree with that mentality. I don't agree with putting up with something that is basically, in my opinion, a giant disaster just to eventually get to something good. Now, Yes, there are some good uh, there are some good pots of gold at the end of rainbows, but you basically just summed up that friendships might get put to the test. Sponsorship deals that uh, are already in place are going to be completely put to the test because of an arbitrary number that was picked by Watsi with basically no flexibility. And and yes, you can argue that it started at nine and they listened to the players and dropped it. But if I think of other esports and other team dynamics, there's usually benches and reserves, and uh, these are ways that you can include more people so that you don't just have to have a set number and no flexibility. Once the season starts, there's no ad drops throughout the season. There's nothing. It's just locked in. And I think that these are huge, huge issues that could easily have been solved just by even saying that your team has to be, let's say, minimum six and six count, but you can have a reserve of four more players for for people who want more, but then it keeps the bar low. Like There's very simple things that I don't think are uh, extremely hard to implement and they could still implement that wouldn't put these strains and these growing pains on people who want to go bigger. And, you know, you have to make that cut to six. If you look at a team like East West Bowl, that's going to be hard. They're huge. If you look at a team like face to face slash channel fireball, they're going to have to take these two collaborative forces that are doing great and split up. And even then they're going to have to fracture down to sixes. Maybe someone's going to try to do some super team, but then we're going to be forcing ourselves into a situation where people aren't all rep by the same sponsors. They're not all playing on the same team. They're just getting points together to earn this side pot of money together. Like I could see a world where these people aren't even testing together, to be honest. Um, I, I know it's incentivized to do so, but if you just have like seven on this team and, you know, you have eight on this team, there's three leftover people right there. They pick up a few more, they're grinding points. And if they have a crazy run, like uh, two Pro Tour top eights in a season, which is basically possible for any of these East-West Bowl guys, you could be looking at a front runner team that's just this amalgamation of like strong, solid Magic players. So yes, I do think that we need something. And I'll be honest, I'm also happy that something is implemented, but I, I just don't, really get behind it fully and give it my support if I'm being honest. And and the last thing I'll say is when I was uh, qualified for the last Pro Tour, we were talking what happens if I requeue for Dublin. I didn't, but I was starting to think what kind of team would I get on? And you get these players like me who have been to six, seven Pro Tours who aren't, you know, super good at Magic that just kind of feel like this is not at all for me. And it's that extra level for the top pros, which could be a good thing, but I think there's ways that you can have, like I said, the bench system that more people will get included, even if they're on a bench. And even if you make a deal within your team that you have to play a certain number of uh, matches in the big final tournament to get paid or whatever, right? Like, I don't know. That That's kind of my thoughts on it. But I want to give a, a couple quick responses to a, a couple of those points. <laughs> You're right. This isn't for us. Um, that's cool, though. I'm fine with that because it gives me a reason to make it want to be for me does that make sense like i've never cared about being a top magic player before because there's no money in it like i'm not throwing my life away to make forty thousand dollars a year at my absolute pinnacle like that's insane to me so that being the case uh it's it's fine that it's not for me but it's there if i want to push it and try and make it for me which i appreciate and then the other things uh, some of the negatives you're describing um clashing egos and friendships that get broken up and sponsorship troubles that sounds a lot like sports to me which is exactly (laughs) the goal that we're going for like that that's kind of like the nature of sports these things happen these relationships are tested 
And, uh, you know, this is, like I said, I think this is the direction we have to move. We will move. Obviously, do I want a perfect system right off the bat? Sure. Yeah, let's get it right the first time. But you know how these things work out. This is a, a difficult, uncharted territory. Give it some time. I think it'll be a huge add to the Pro Tour. No, you, you are right. I'm just going to say, though, what sport doesn't have a backup or a bench? I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm not talking about, like, egos clashing is a bad play. I'm talking about, like, oh, wait, we literally are capped at six. Sorry. Like, I don't know. I don't get it. Some of the sports operate with no bench. You know, uh, League of Legends teams can carry benches, but some don't. They choose uh, not they, to, though. That, that's their choice. Yeah, it's not yeah. their mandate. <laughs> it is, but, I mean, like, even when you're, you're, you're mandated a certain bench size, right, it's not like you can have infinite players. So to that argument, you always set the line somewhere, and then just here it's, you're not setting a bench. <laughs> I, I want to add a few, few things that, onto what Doug said uh, and want to get your, your reply, Brian. Uh, Doug mentioned how some teams, these teams might not be even working together. Like I've talked to people who are going, planning to play at the PT and you know, their strategy might be to combine two teams because you can't, draft, you can't have like an actual real draft at six. So they might be two teams of six. Um, I've talked to people who are, who are thinking about that so that they're 12 so that they can host drafts and then have the other four do maybe some testing on the side and just keep rotating. And then there are people I know that are just a small team and they're just going to throw randoms as their fifth and, and their sixth. Uh, so does, does that matter to you, Brian? Does that really affect anything at all? It's not ideal. You know, you would like these teams to be more structured, more defined. But there, up until this point in Magic history, there's been no reason to make these more structured, more defined teams. Imagine if this had been the case from the beginning of the Magic Pro Tour. You had teams of six, there's a, a structure every year, then yeah, teams naturally would have formed around this, you know, kind of rule of six. Every team would have six players. You'd cut your team there. You wouldn't go any further than that. But we're adapting midstream. There's going to be growing pains. On the whole, th these just aren't important things. Like, yes, there's some numbers issues to crank out, but the ultimate goal is there. Teams will compete when teams have to compete. And maybe it'll be a situation where, you know, uh, there's a 12-person team and they split into two teams of six. And then they both end up leading the leaderboard, right? They, they both crush it. And now you come to the last pro tour and oh, all of a sudden, maybe it's not in their best interest to work with these people anymore. Maybe we do have to split off. Isn't that cool? Like, is that a bad thing? I think that's exciting. That's a great storyline. That's interesting when the pro tour comes. You can sell it as a rivalry. I mean, like Magic doesn't have rivalries, right? Like there's, there's nobody who when they play each other, it's like, you get excited because two great players play each other. You're like, oh, that guy's really good, and that guy's really good. This should be a good match. But it's not like, oh, that guy really hates that guy. Like, he wants nothing. <laughs> I mean, maybe short of, like, the cheaters, right? Like, you could always root against the cheaters. Like, I guess the best match I can think of right now would be if uh, Marcio and Ben Stark played each other. Oh, that my would, goodness. That would be, like, what, the hottest match. Would you right root now. for a double DQ? <laughs> I would no, pretend. I don't feel I'm that strongly about Ben, but I'm just um, kidding. <laughs> I, I think that yeah, that's like that would be the hottest rivalry. But there'll be more of that, is my point, if we're if we have this team situation pop up. No, and, and I will say you do have some valid points. You actually have a lot of valid points. I want to see the the future of magic as an esport. I do want to see that. And if this is a step I have to take, I'll take it. But uh, I just want to point out one really cool thing that hasn't been mentioned. Um, a friend of mine, his plan, if he qualified was for this pro tour, was to go to one of these teams of sixes and say, hey, I'm willing to free agent and not even sign up for this team thing. I'll just be an extra body. I'll be your seventh. I won't be on any teams, and I'll be with you guys just helping. His incentive is solely for the pro tour and his own gain, not for this like extra pot. So, yeah, there's some really neat things that can form around it too, but... In my head, I just keep getting back to like, but if he was on a bench and never played in the six and didn't get paid, that'd feel a little bit better than, oh, well, but I was just here for my own personal pro tour. So you do, you do have some good points. And I'm happy that something's happening. I'm just not happy with what it is. <laughs> and one last quick parting shot is that Magic teams, with a very few exceptions, are so bad. Like there's <laughs> so little organization. There's so little cooperation. Um, you know, the, the, like the last team I was on was bad, but for a purpose we were all very busy we knew we were going to be a bad team going into it we didn't have time to really devote to testing and like it was a good experience i was happy to work with them but like it was not what a team for a professional level event should be there wasn't the level of rigor and the level of dedication and you know 
I, I want to see things like coaches come into play, support staff, all of these Analysts. things would be amazing. Yeah, all this stuff would be great. And I, I think they're I think the first team that goes that route is going to see huge returns on it. Tremendous mm-hmm. returns. Because I mean, you know how testing is. It's, and there's some exceptions to this. There's some teams where I'm very impressed with their process. Um, but very, 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 very few. Um, for the most part, it's just like dudes get together and jam games and hope to figure something out. And uh, well, for dinner with the game. <laughs> yeah. So, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, taking steps away from that would be really cool. Uh, I have one last question for you, Brian, on this topic before we move on. Um, unlike league and basketball and hockey, those sports are actually played in games, are actually played where you see all the teammates of the two different teams face off against each other. They're all on the same screen. Here, it isn't. So do you think that might be a bad thing? And um, I think it could be a good thing, but it puts a lot of pressure and responsibility for the stream, the coverage, to really hype this up, to have, like, the points of every team. So make it feel, even though the other team members aren't there, that this counts um, for, for the whole Pro Tour team thing. Yeah, you're, you're right that it's not there, but it can be. Like, we can, we can think of ways to do this where, like, you show the drama of, you know, there's, there's one match to decide it all, and you hold that match until the, the, the rest of the round is done, right? And you put the teams behind the two players playing the match and you see them like looking over the other person's shoulder. Like I could see it in my head. This is compelling mm-hmm. and exciting sports and, and entertainment. And, uh, this is add this to my list of things that when some gives, someone gives me a magic wand and lets me, uh, fiddle around with wizards organized play, uh, that I'll be adding. There'll be a, a tense arena setting. We'll hold the last match. Uh, that's going to decide the team pro tour champion and we're going to pile the teams behind the other players and you'll see them whispering to each other with tense looks on their faces and it'll be really really good stuff uh, it's going to take some time but we're going to get there for sure okay sweet okay i'm just gonna switch it up we've got a, a bunch of topics but i'm just going to go more jump uh, a few steps and go more magic specific something i wanted to talk about last week which is some of the early spoilers that are going to come out in aether revolt uh, one of the ones that has caused a bit of a stir is heart of kirin because of its oh my god it's smuggler's copter 2.0 you're going to be able to play this play a gideon attack with it and have it to defend your gideon so lots of excitement it is legendary I think, Brian, you, you might be a bit less excited than, than most people at the initial reaction. So what's your take on this card, Brian? Well, it turns out if you, if you take a card and you list all of its best possible scenarios, that card will sound <laughs> pretty good most of the time. So what you just sounded, that sounds great. Yeah, really good stuff going on. Um, but there's a billion other scenarios where the card just does nothing. And like Planeswalker loyalty is it's a somewhat plentiful resource, but you don't necessarily want to throw it away constantly. I mean, it's, it's not that quickly replenishable. Um, there's also the fact that there's a card, you may have seen it if you've played some standard, it's called Smuggler's Copter, and it sits at exactly the same place on the curve. It's also a vehicle, and vehicles, as we know, have diminishing returns. You can only play so many in your deck. Uh, this one has a particularly huge crew cost. It's, it's not, your Thraben Inspector is not ha- hopping in this, uh, this heart. Um, I, I'm not sold at all. I, I, I could see like a copy or two making it into a few decks. This isn't a format staple to me. It's not, I, I don't know. I, th- this is one that has me scratching my head. People seem way too excited about this card. All right. I'm, uh, I'm going to take the pro heart of Kieran stance here. And I definitely think KYT obviously explained like the nut scenario with this card. And if it wasn't legendary, I'd be way higher on it because I do actually want to jam multiple copies of this card in my deck. It has that diminishing return of being legendary. But the things I really like about this card are if you're playing it in the vehicles deck, you've got three power crew creatures. You've got Toolcraft Exemplar. You've got Motorist. You've got Tapala. Like These guys crewed this card. And the thing that's sweet about this card is when you're tapping one of your creatures to crew it and attack, you're not tapping the two creatures. You still have this back on defense if you can manage to to still crew it. It's 4-4, so it's bigger than Copter. And when pumped up by either the Motorist or the Dipala, 
it's at that crucial 5-5 level, which I think lets it get past Ishkana, either having a gang block that uh, the Ishkana itself has to get a part of, or you're going to be taking multiple spiders. I really like the fact that you can also use loyalty, and I know you don't have infinite loyalty, but when you're playing with a Gideon, you can continually zero him and use loyalty on this, either offensively or defensively or both. If you're plussing him, you can plus him and use the loyalty on this and then use one more on defense. And then I also think it has this really cool application where this is the first vehicle I've seen, uh, with maybe the exception of the Cultivator's Caravan, that can play really well in some type of just extreme control deck. And I think that having a card in a control deck that can come down early when you're not really doing anything and that can bolster behind your Planeswalkers like your Dovenban or your Liliana or Gideon or whatever other Planeswalkers come out in this set that can be a blocker just using their loyalty. I think that's a huge asset to help you get through the mid-game. And I think this card could be good enough to be one of the threats in these really like low Torrential Gearhulk, low creature count decks with a bunch of Planeswalkers that could help it get underneath these fast decks with a blocker in the early game that can help uh, supplant right next to a planeswalker so i'm pretty high on it i think it's legendary for a reason i think they tested this card a lot and it's a lot better than you're giving it credit for or else i can't understand why it's legendary well other than the fact that it's the parents who uh, i assume own it because of the last name but or kiran but anyways that that those are my thoughts on it I, I will say that your usage in a Planeswalker heavy deck is the most intriguing use I've heard for it. That excites me way more than like throwing it in my vehicle, my white red vehicles deck. It just it's maybe one of there probably okay. Doesn't seem game breaking. Um, it, it does add an interesting dimension in a deck that just wants to play Planeswalkers and protect Planeswalkers uh, and can still, um you know, punish a Liliana yeah, early. exactly. Which is an important thing out of the control decks right now that they really struggle with is, is punishing a Liliana. So, okay. I'll, I'll give you a couple points for showing me a novel usage of the card. And you can cast uh, a Wrath of God and then attack with it. Like, uh, come on. Um, I'm, I'm still very medium on this card. I, I'm not saying it's, it's garbage. It's certainly, you know, pushed on power level. The, the fact that it can be a 5-5 after a veteran motorist cruise, it is a very big deal against this Kana. And I just want to PPTQ with uh, the Mardu Vehicles deck and yeah. cult, uh, Cultivator's Caravan. The fact that it was a 5-5 was one of the key factors in that deck being able to beat Nishkana. So 5-5s are the real deal right now. I'm not disputing that. But uh, yeah, not a format staple. Uh, fringe player, low impact probably. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I, I give it a bit more than that. It, it's no copter, but it, it's. I think it's better than the caravan. Caravan's a real magic card because it taps for blue. Car- That's why it's a real magic card. Otherwise, that card would be just dopey. <laughs> I don't know. I have, I have a lot of respect for that card. I was I was not a big fan of the Martyr Vehicles deck. I just kind of actually my brother was playing in the same PPTQ and I gave him my Black Green Delirium deck, which is mm. my favorite deck in standard. And I had never played with the Marty Vehicles deck before. And uh, I, <laughs> I walked away with a new appreciation of Cultivator's Caravan. All right, fair, fair. Um, Doug, we'll go right back at you. A card that uh, on Twitter you expre- expressed some excitement over, oh, yeah. which is Disallow. Uh, th- two blue, one colorless, instant, counter target spell, activated ability or triggered ability. Mana abilities can't be targeted. Um, people were freaking out, like, oh, it's, so, well, some people were like, oh, it's, it's like the better cancel, and, and they're excited about it, and uh, you were, you know, you tweeted your excitement, so tell us why were you so excited? I'm so hyped on this card. I just have to say, I have some bias. My first GP ever, I played with a card near and dear to my heart called Stifle, and I day would by stifling uh, an Aether Vial activation, and I won my pro tour invite in the last round by stifling a Maloku token for the win. So I'm all about the stifle effect. Like that effect to me is just such a strong effect. And this card has it on it as well as the fact that it's a three mana counter. I mean, people are playing void shatter right now, which yes can exile and there's cards like scrap heap scrounger. And that is certainly a relevant thing with delirium, but come on activated and triggered abilities. 
that's a huge, huge thing that you can be able to counter. Being able to counter Liliana ultimates, being able to counter an Aetherworks, um, an Aetherworks activation if you really just have the game pretty much locked up uh, and you don't think they can get six more energy. Or if they do hit that Eldrazi and you're not too actually worried about a 13-13 or a 10-10 on the ground that you can Stasis Snare, being able to counter the triggered ability that it has. Like, this thing has so many applications. I could even see situations where someone goes to crew a copter for the win and I'm able to just counter the the triggered ability on that and and get them like i'm so about the disallow i i think that this is going to be the card that pushes blue white um which is already a great deck onto the next level and i i heard you two talking last week about it you were mocking it a lot even though i'd said the week before that it wasn't really a deck and uh, uh no i said it was a deck it, you guys said it wasn't a deck sorry and it is a three drop but i think it's the three drop we need this is the card that does everything i've wanted uh, for so long in a magic card and and I think it's priced fairly it's not going to be oppressive uh, but it's it's going to be a control deck's best friend for for time to come like oh I love this card torrential gearhole can flash that back yeah get out of here let's go <laughs> so I, I think I uh, I share some of your enthusiasm about this card I'm less enthused about its presence in blue white just because I, the shell of blue white is not good no matter what you throw into it oh. as it stands now but but the control decks in the current format have an issue that uh threat diversity is probably at an all-time high right like you have to worry about creatures you have to worry about recursive creatures you have to worry about artifact activations which are game breaking you have to worry about planeswalkers planeswalker activations vehicles which aren't even caught by traditional sweepers so Wizards has really put the pressure on control decks to answer a vast, vast, vast array of threats. And a card with this type of versatility is exactly what's needed for control to kind of step up. You know, one of the huge defining problems of control in the current meta is that on the draw against a Liliana, they cannot present a torrential gear hope to attack it before it ultimates. Um, this totally erases that problem. Just you just stifle their Liliana activation and they've wasted all those valuable resources in the turns and turns of setup this takes. Um, just that alone is a tremendous game changer in the control versus green-black matchup. Um, I, I don't really want to speculate about like what this does to the format because there's so much more of this set to come. We have no idea what's coming down the pipeline. Everything can change so much. So I just want to speak about it in terms of this is a very, very a very, very versatile card for a time that demands versatile answers. And I hope that we see more things like this, things like, um, you know, the old charm cycles. I, I don't expect to see them specifically, but just things with control needs cards that have a variety of modes. Um, think about how good Colligan's Command would be in this format. Like, that mm -hmm. would do so much for so many decks. Um, Wow, I just thought about returning Torrential Gearhulk with Culligan's Command. Things got really excited about this. <laughs> um, but yeah, cards like that that can that have all these modes and can do so many things, that's exactly what control decks are missing right now. Uh, so I, I, this is a great start. I hope we see more cards like this as we continue to see uh, the rest of the set. And, you know, another exciting one kind of along those same lines, a card that does a lot, uh, the new language-type card, I don't know the name of it. KYT, do you know the name of that card offhand? It's Yahini's Expertise. Whoa. That's the minus three, minus three, and then you can play converted mana costs three or less. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Rat, rat their board, play Liliana. Yeah. Okay, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Um, rat their board, you know, draw some cards. Ooh, that sounds really good. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on that I'm excited about as a. I mean, I don't know if I identify myself as a control mage anymore. I think I've kind of like moved past the self-identification as ex-mage. But um, I, if a control deck's good, I love playing them. And hopefully we're headed down that path right now. All right, all right. Um, now we're going to take a question from Tyler Blum, who submitted a question on my Facebook page that he wanted us to uh, debate over, and I thought it was a pretty interesting one because it's one that occurs over and over and over again uh, for 
those of us that play competitive tournaments, well, not really. If, if we play fast, it doesn't actually happen that often. Uh, but his question was, he wanted us to talk about the ethics of uh, scooping when the game's about to draw. Should players way behind always scoop? Uh, I'll start with you, Brian. What's your take? No. <laughs> like, why? What, what, is, what says they have to scoop? Let me tell you something. For Grand Prix Day 1, and I will scoop to my opponent, always. Because a draw is, is a loss, essentially, in Day 1s of Grand Prix. I hope that that same courtesy would be extended to me. It absolutely 100% never is. I don't think I've ever gotten that scoop <laughs> on Day 1, like, ever. <laughs> I, my, uh, my proclivity to give it out. But honestly, that's fine. They, they don't have any obligation to scoop to me. They don't have to. You know, if you're really setting up for that long game and think if you only have one draw when you make it into day two, then you're in much better spot than if you had the loss. Well, that's, that's true. I, I can't really refute that. If we didn't finish the game in time, you're well within your rights not to scoop to me. I would scoop to you in a GP. And in other situations, I wouldn't. Um, you know, there's, there's some smaller tournaments where just because I'm behind doesn't mean I'm necessarily scooping. Um, you know, but this, this kind of comes with an implicit agreement that we'll both do whatever we can to finish the game in the allotted time. Um, if you violate that agreement, then all bets are off. You know, if, if I'm playing in a GP and someone's deliberately slow playing me to, to get the draw, I'm scooping them in that spot, right? Like, you've kind of, like, violated the sacred path, taking away my... Uh, my my scoop from you, but it, yeah, this is just something that it's, it's part of the game. You have the right to scoop and you have the right not to scoop. Do what you want to do. Yeah, and it's tough to argue with the simple statement that obviously no, um, you shouldn't always scoop with your behinds, but I do think you, you do bring up some compli complicated issues, um, like at the end of day one at a GP where only one of you makes it if there's a winner and no one makes it, there's a draw. Another situation is, let's say, you're playing for top eight of a GP. But if you draw, you both get like $1,000, whereas if one of you loses, you get 500 let's say, right? And there's no prize split talk. And so it would, you know, what do you do, right? Should someone scoop there or should someone not? And I think for me, the big part of this discussion um, isn't so much about... Uh, if the scoop should happen on my end or not. Like, it's not what I scoop. Yes, I would scoop to someone like you would into day two. But I think the key part of it is, if someone doesn't scoop, you shouldn't get mad at them. You shouldn't be upset with their decision because they chose not to. And that's really where I stand on this issue is, um, if they think that they should scoop, okay, you, like, that, that's their decision. If they think they shouldn't scoop, once again, okay. You shouldn't bring like frustration into it. And I had a teammate at Pro Tour San Diego who was playing for day two and was way ahead on board. And uh, his opponent just wouldn't scoop to him. And they were like, we're just going to get a draw. We're both going to miss. His opponent's like, okay, well, I can't scoop here. I'm sorry. Like either I get to go to day two or we don't. And, and he said normally like in any other situation, he would have just given the guy day two. But since he was ahead, he chose not to. And for me, I don't think like the frustration should come into it at all. I think that you either should scoop the guy or not, and it's kind of like your choice, and you shouldn't hold it against someone who doesn't want to scoop just because he's not playing by the rules the same way you are, because you've chosen that whoever's ahead uh, should get the win. Like, that doesn't mean your opponent has to be in the same boat as you. Like, and so I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with you, but I'm, uh, I'm kind of getting more on the people that believe that you should scoop, and I've seen it in articles before, and I've heard uh, in pro culture people just have this belief that you know, it should be about incentives and there's no incentive for you both losing. And I just think that's stupid. Like you're allowed to choose to, to finish your match and get a draw. Like you don't have to be chastised for that. In my opinion, I, I gained a lot of clarity on the situation where, um, this was in day two of GP Atlantic city, which I ultimately went on the top eight and I was paired down in the second draft. Uh, so I was still live for top eight. My opponent wasn't. And we went to time, and I asked my opponent if he would scoop to me, me being live for top eight, and the effect of um, this is one of my, uh, it's, it's, it was either like his first GP or he had never had a pro point before, range of getting his first ever pro point, and that was really important to him. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I get that. I mean, I remember what it was like to get your first pro point. It scooped me. He was like, I was like, I think you're still live for a pro point if, if you win your next round. And I'm still live for top eight if I win my next round. He, he scooped. And I was extremely appreciative of it. But if he hadn't, he was well within his right. And, you know, Magic's different for everyone. It's a different game to every person who plays it. And to some people, that pro point means absolutely everything. It, it defines their Magic career, getting that first pro point. Um, to other people, a pro point is completely meaningless. So everyone has their own incentives, their own goals. I don't think anyone should ever be made feel bad for not scooping. But as a um, kind of like a karma type thing, this guy scooped to me, and then the very next GP he played, he top eight and qualified for the Pro Tour. Wow, so, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, he definitely uh, reaps some good karma for his decision. <laughs> what a story. That's yeah. great. I like that. What a story. What a story. Um, wow. I kind of love how both of you answered this question. Really insightful, especially uh, with your experiences. Moving on to something else. Uh, there's some people who suggested uh, we maybe talk and address some potential to little improvements uh, in terms of the tournament experience. And this one I was inspired by my talk uh, with Adam Yurchik, actually, when I went down for GP Providence. We had a talk about um, sketchy opponents and what he may be afraid of, what he's on the lookout for. And he had mentioned, one of the early mentions he had was that sometimes he's really, he's gone into at least a few times uh, calling out his opponent for not randomizing dice properly in the past where they would just like hold the dice like this and just instantly flip it down and would feel, I mean, it was, it's one of those weird situations where you feel like you have to call your opponent out on it, but then some opponents might take it the wrong way. might think, you know, you're a little being a little anal about the, the whole situation. And uh, I think he has, and I've seen other people, I don't know for what reason, uh, use different methods of figuring out who goes first. They've got like rock, paper, scissor cards. And then there's others that are really specific about the type of dice you use to roll. Like I've never cared and maybe I should, maybe I've been at a disadvantage this whole time, but some people are really specific that you can't use uh, a spin down or something like that. Uh, let's start with you. I, you I won't roll spin downs. <laughs> I, I never do. See, I would roll a spin down, but what I always say when someone has one is just shake it in your hand closed and then roll it because then it won't matter. But um, I, I think, I think it's pretty clear that if there was some, you know, ubiquitous way that everybody could be randomly determined and there's no advantage, that's just clearly the best way of doing it as long as it can be implemented easily. Like, I, I had a situation that happened um, at a recent Pro Tour that I rolled the dice and I rolled, like, 13 or something like that. It's on a, just a 20-sided. My opponent rolled the dice and rolled, like, an 11. And then we're shuffling up and he said, I'll play. And I said what are you talking about? I won the roll. And he said, no, you didn't. You rolled a 10. I rolled an 11. And I was looking at him and I couldn't tell in that moment if he just missaw or if he was just trying to get me. And we, we ended up having to reroll. Like I straight up called the judge and like, well, I don't know what to do. Just reroll. And I was like, this is insane. I just won a die roll and have to reroll at a pro tour. Like in modern, this is crazy. Um, it felt awful. It's a huge deal. Yeah, it, That's a huge deal. It felt awful. I ended up winning the second die roll. He rolled a nat one, so get out is all I have to say. But um, uh, my point is not so much about the the win. It's it's if there was a way, I'd be all for it. And and I don't know what that is because of you know rigged dice exist for odd or even or for the whole spin down or or what you're saying. And someone I think you posted KYT and uh, when we were talking about this, maybe it, it being on the pairings board. Um, but I'm all for it. I'm, I'm all about if you can just have some way that there's no abuse. Uh, I think it's a big advantage that could be gained and people would have no idea that it's even happening, which is these small tricks that every once in a while you're just like, oh, wait, you didn't roll a 13? Oh, my bad. And maybe the other guy even feels guilty. It's like, hey, let's just re-roll, right? Like, it wouldn't be hard to get someone. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. I, I hate the randomization process in Magic. I say, let's do something to fix it. Yeah, I... I'm totally with you with all the cheating we've seen over the past few years. Like, you don't think people are exploiting the die roll? Absolutely. How easy is that to do? I think uh, 
you know, flipping lands to the top of the deck are certainly willing to fix the die roll 100%. Uh, and in a format like Modern, like you were talking about, tremendous, tremendous deal. Um, I had never thought of the parents board thing before, but like, that's ingenious. Wow. Why don't we, let's do it right now. Let's uh, someone call wizards start. <laughs> what is, there's literally no reason not to do it. How hard is that to implement? The only tiny drawback I could think of is like you walk to your table and neither one of you remembers who was going first, but like, I, you just get used to that, right? Like it'd just be something you look for. Like you look for your table number and you look who's, pl- who's on the, who gets to choose player draw. It would be part of our turn. Tournament DNA it would be ingrained in all of us within a month. Uh, this this seems really easy, really elegant. Something I never thought about before. You know what it probably is is that like Wizards reporter is just not capable of doing anything along these lines. Like it can barely even run a tournament, much less <laughs> do like additional functions. Um, but if we ever get a new tournament software, I strongly, strongly advise that this is something that happens. Uh, determine play draw. Uh, you know, automatically bring it to the parents board way easier. Yeah. And there's no incentive when you're looking at the parents board, you're like, Oh shoot, I'm on the draw to sit down and say, Oh, I didn't look. Did you look like, cause then you're just going to call a judge and you're going to waste time. You're going to get a time extension or you're not. And then you're going to be at a disadvantage. So yeah, it's just, it's a flawless, simple fix. Um, yeah. I, I, I know that, you know, we're agreeing on a lot of things today on what's supposed to be a debate podcast. I think we're just debating against the world right now, um, or, or WOTC, or were Wizard Vent Reporter, or whatever. But, yeah, no, bring it on. Let's do it. Oh, I, no, I think, I think it's, it's good that we're, we are debating against the world, and there's a lot of uh, interesting discussion. Uh, for uh, Brian, I just wonder if you think that um, – yeah, you brought up the point that I was scared of, which is if they do implement this, people might – complain like they just forget but i see that like i mentioned it in chat and this idea came from me playing chess like when you from what i remember in my tournament life you had black or white on the parents board and like okay if you have to go back you have to go back but i never played a chess tournament where there were thousands of players so maybe it's a little different maybe it's less manageable we're in chess like you're actually divided in little uh, not only is the ter- tournament are smaller that I've been playing at, but not only that, but your tournament is usually in smaller sections so that like almost like a draft where you could just walk up easily and see if you were black or white. So I wonder if that's a, a big, uh, might be a big thing. And you mentioned the biggest thing, which is Wizards Event re- Reporter, whereas in chess, I'm, I'm sure the chess software actually tracks, um, gives you, um, because it's not trying, I don't think it's trying to, randomize uh actually when i think about it maybe it depends what you want maybe you want to randomize 50 percent each time or in chess i'm pretty sure they just alternate they give you a pretty if possible you're black and white 50 percent of the tournament that's you know that's i had never thought of that that's a really interesting possibility too what if every round you where possible you you alternated between player draw that's kind of a crazy thing that totally changes tournament dynamic and is reducing variance a little bit, especially in a format like modern where being on the player draw is so important. Now that probably has game theory implications as far as deck choices. So maybe that's a rabbit hole that we don't want. I was going to say, but it's an interesting thought, right? Like it's, it's, it's totally possible that we could in huge tournaments um, fix things like that. But uh, to your point, as magic players, we have to process and remember so much stuff. This one little thing that you're asking me to remember, like, is it really that? It, it's not the straw that breaks the camel's back. Like, I can handle draw because, you know, that's an important thing, and it'll be the first thing you look at when you step up to the board. Um, you know, and we could also, while we're talking about having to find it at the parents' board, why do parents' boards still exist? Like, are you kidding me? This is... Wait, let me check what year it is. 2016, and we really have to print out the pairings and put them up. Like, mandate that everyone has an app that you can just check on your phone where your pairings are, and then you can check it at the table to see who's on the player draw. Uh, I, I, obviously, we're dealing with some outdated technology here, but even with our outdated technology, I'm pretty sure that this is something that can make happen. Yeah, um, no, I agree. And I just want to say, like, most GPs I go to these days, the paper for my pairings is actually already out by the time I get to my seat. The judges do it like as pairings are going up. 
they're not coming over during my match, like a PPTQ dropping a slip. So you could literally even have it on the slip too. I mean, yeah. like then you wouldn't even need to worry about this whole he said, she said thing. So I don't know. Fix it, Wizards. We we just solved it. Let's go. We just instantly <laughs> reduced cheaters to grasp on a portion of the game. Just it evaporates instantly. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, Wizards of Night Report can handle it, so it's going to be a while. Um, <laughs> Doug, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, did you play at a PT where they started to have just online deck registration? Yeah, so Pro Tour Kaladesh, uh, the, the, just the last one that happened, they, it was all online deck registration. You, you did not get to hand in uh, your registration by hand. You went to a, a site that was basically just a Google form, and you could submit, and you could resubmit. Um, it would always go the most recent submitted version uh, is, is the one that you get. So my question is, to you, I'll start with you, Doug. How, because to me, it's hard for, for me to imagine this, of course, with GPs being hosted by TOs, Wizards doesn't control everything right now. And we've seen some tournaments have online deck res, some have not. Do you, the question would be, do you foresee a world in maybe years where it's only online deck reg, even at the GP level? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I've, I I don't know where Brian sits on this, but I've flip-flopped back and forth even during the experience of that Pro Tour between um, do I like it as an option uh, that you can use but don't have to or do I like it as an option that you must use? Because there was certainly you know a lot of stress that night and I kept feeling like, oh, but maybe I'm going to sleep and I'm going to wake up and tomorrow I'm going to have changed my mind and it's too late. And, and, and I know this is a silly yeah, thing. I know yeah. it's a silly thing because we're just going to change that, you know, the night before is when you're going to have that same thing and you're going to have the whole day, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think where I firmly landed on it after going through the process once is online is just way better. And paper is just get it out. I don't want any more paper sheets. I feel like um, the dexterity errors are way, way more um, prominent with paper or misreading than it is with submitting. Uh, you get to, to look at it. You get to submit it. You could even have, like, um, it, eventually you could have it where you're populating from, like, uh, like, a card generator. So you're actually, like, pulling over tangible cards. So when you type Ajani the whatever, and they're like, oh, that's the wrong Ajani. You know, we could get to that step eventually, but for now, the Google form is fine, too. Um, it's f a fun little fact about this, too. Just I know it's slightly off topic, but uh, you could see the list of everyone who had submitted their decks and when they submitted it. So you'd actually see who had submitted and who hadn't. And there was this Japanese guy playing at the Pro Tour. He'd submitted his decks two and a half weeks before the Pro Tour. <laughs> just, that's awesome I really should have written down his name and looked how he did because he just stone cold submitted it two and a half weeks early and he didn't change it we checked all the way until up after midnight because like we modified ours and it says the most recent version but this guy just he was locked in early and that was just like wiped off his list he could get to drafting or whatever else he needed to do you know but no online all the way um, there will be some bugs there will be some issues but just have a firm rule about it. You know, penalty if you're late, game loss. Just like if you miswrote the word, uh, like, cabal or whatever, game loss. Like, it, it's the same concept. It's just now about a time. Um, yeah, let's go. Online only. Uh, 2016. I, I have no debate. It's 2016. <laughs> what is the problem? I, I mean, to, to your point on the last-minute changes, I, First of all, nobody makes any good decisions the morning of the Pro Tour. <laughs> Although, I actually, I remember my first Pro Tour, I, I cut Ponders from my deck for Sage of Epitier, and it was an awesome decision. It made my deck so much better. I what? Did like, yep, I did it like 10 minutes before the tournament. Uh, someone came up to us and like, have you seen this card before? And I'm like, no, that's exactly what my deck wants. I'll take it. And I cut my Ponders and played Sage of Epitier, and it was fantastic. Um, and then... The other thing is, like, when we were talking about moving this to an app, I don't know if I'm spoiling a secret, but, like, there's an app that exists that pro players use that track um, deck lists or, like, deck archetypes for every single person in the tournament. Uh, it's, like, the scouting app that everyone uses. If that exists, like, that's so much more complicated, and, like, the interface for it is perfect. It, it works oh, every yeah. time. It's super easy. And the fact that Wizards can't do, like, an app to submit decks... Like, how, how hard is that? That seems like it would just be, like, a five-minute thing that 
a talented programmer could whip up and we could be done with this. Um, all these things are coming. I'm sure they're all in the pipeline and magic will be forever greater in the coming years. <laughs> Let's hope so. So, so for the final topic, this comes from, um, once again, Bloody Mess Jess, uh, who has uh, Jessica, who has suggested a previous topic before. She wanted us to chime in a little bit about the current state of uh, the competitive draft leagues versus the uh, friendly ones, because as opposed to constructed and constructed leagues, we have, uh, surprisingly to me, actually, the, a super balanced mix. Like I just logged in um, a couple of hours ago, saw that we're 1,066 players in competitive or friendly and 1,014 in the other one. So pretty similar. But once you move to the drafts, you have 5,338 in the friendly ones. Um, and we have only 413 in the competitive ones. And uh, the difference is, for people who haven't jumped on MTGO and know, is that the competitive ones are single elimination drafts, whereas the friendly ones, you, you can just play with your deck a bunch of matches and the tournament structure, uh, the prize structure is a lot more flat. And we've seen complaints of people waiting 10 to 20 minutes and it goes against what people thought leagues were for, which is you're able to sit down, play them if you have a tight schedule. You don't have to sit through a whole draft. It's a way to save time. And some people are complaining because you aren't saving time. Um, Doug, uh, I'll start with you. What, what do you think? Yeah, um, first, just quick clarification. I'm logging on Moto to double check this. But um, eight fours that aren't leagues, they still exist, right? This is part of my argument. Um, but from what I understand, and I'm going to be pulling this up while I, uh, while I say this, but from what I understand, when they implemented friendly leagues, um, friendly leagues replaced the old like 4-3-2-2 draft. That was just the option that you had now. It moved to league, and people freaked out about that. Whereas competitive, they still kept the 8-4 draft queues. And from my understanding, 8-4s right now are split between leagues as well as you can still jump in a queue. And I'm just pulling it up here. Um, to see if I'm right. Uh, and it looks like, no, they... Yeah, you can do an Eldritch Moon Shadows over Innistrad. No, that's the old one. Okay, so it's all moved over. Okay, so that that was my first thing. I'm going to throw that out the window because it's not true. So I'm big pro on leagues. I think leagues are phenomenal. I think that they're the future. I think that um, one of the big things that hurt this new competitive, yeah, single elimination will hurt it, Another thing that hurts it is the friendly ones are already established and people have already been grinding them. And you have a lot of players like myself who've had a league open for over a month. There's a league that I'm in that I've played two matches that I just have played for over a month and I don't love my deck and I just haven't finished it. I straight up, I'm jamming modern leagues and I joined a competitive single elimination while I was in my friendly league because I just didn't want to play that deck. So there's like this part of the player base that are just over in the other one when you when you start the uh, the second type of league. Um, I've had heard people complain about the leagues specifically that there are more for the casuals and, and you don't get competitive practice uh, because they're paired across pod. And I think that that's nonsense personally. I don't think you're going to be getting your competitive practice on Magic Online, period. So it doesn't matter to me if it's cross pod or in pod because it's not the same as real life anyways. And I think that uh, that notion has caused a lot of people to kind of stray away from it. I have friends who have said to me, oh, well, it's not, it's not as good as an 8-4 draft because it's cross-pod. And I said to them, well, why? Like, what, what do you do differently in an 8-4? And they're like, well, I don't know. That's just what everyone's saying. And I think that that mentality really does hurt it. People aren't joining something if a lot of um, people they respect are against it, even if they don't understand why it's really not that big a deal and i know sperling put on an article right back when leagues came out that was basically outlining i agree with what he was saying why leagues are just a better way of doing things and so um i'm very pro leagues and i think that with time when a new set comes out when competitive is already in place at the start of the new set, when people are going to start having their choice i think that it will pick up and uh so i'm for it so i i think i'm I'm forced to argue from a difficult position here, um, but I, I am a lawyer, so and I guess that's what I'm paid to do, so I will do so. <laughs> the fact is that I understand that leagues 
are the future. They are incredibly important to Magic Online's health. They have to be the main method of competitive play for Magic Online to succeed in the future, for it to grow. Absolutely, on-demand gaming is how gaming has to work now. It, it can't revert to the old model. But what you're doing in a competitive draft league is not drafting. It's something new. It's very similar to drafting, but it's not like being in a draft pod at the Pro Tour. It's not even close. And, you know, you're saying the numbers between the competitive standard and the friendly standard are pretty similar. Why wouldn't that hold up for the... It's because when you play competitive standard and friendly standard, you're still just playing standard. There's, there's, you're not fundamentally changing the game, so competitive players are still interested in it. When you fundamentally change the way a draft works, that's a dramatic alteration, and the practice isn't worth it. You're right that no longer are those the way to train for the Pro Tour, but absolutely Magic Online drafting was how you trained for the Pro Tour previously. And, you know, there was some, maybe like until two years ago, there was maybe two teams in the world who had suitable drafting practice uh, as part of their team regimen. We got eight really talented players together and were able to practice draft that way. But even then, your draft testing will get so inbred if you only test that way that you'll come to false conclusions. So Magic Online was absolutely the, the way you train for the draft portion of a pro tour. And when you are no longer playing within your pod, you can draft totally different. You have zero incentive to hate draft. Now, I'm going to preface that by saying hate drafting is something that beginner drafters do way too much, and they overvalue the importance of hate drafting. And it, it's, it's not what the beginning players think it is. You shouldn't be looking to hate draft every opportunity. But the fact that when I'm in my ninth pick and I'm presented with a card which is almost never going to make my deck, but is on color and generally like a card that if something went absolutely wrong in the last pack, I could conceivably play versus an absolute bomb rare. I should take the card that will almost never see play in my deck because the bomb rare is irrelevant to me. I'm not going to play against this person. It doesn't matter if they get that bomb rare. And what that does is the person who's drafting that ends up with a far more powerful deck than they would have in a normal draft. And if you were to compare power levels, and there's no way to do this, so this is very abstract, but if you were to compare power levels uh, of draft decks in the leagues versus a standard 8-4 pod, I think you would see a noticeable, noticeable difference. You're actually playing a format with the power level turned up. It's like kind of like, if I had to guess, it's like adding an extra card to the pack in terms of the impact on your deck. And when you're trying to test under pro tour conditions with huge amounts of money on the line, every single thing like that matters. You don't want any kind of... I mean, we just talked about how a six-man draft... I mean. Fundamentally, a six-man draft is very close to what's going on in an eight-man draft, except it's not, and you would never use that for a practice of a, <laughs> for a pro tour. And this is the exact same situation you're faced with. I, I thought eight four Qs were still up. If they're, I, I don't draft as much as I used to, partially because Kaladesh is terrible. Um, but if if they're not up, that's a real travesty. Actually, I, I find that hard to believe that they would take away the eight four Qs in favor of these competitive leagues. Um, so I, I just want to respond because I, I disagree with a few of your statements. I do want to preface with, yes, obviously Magic Online is how you test for the Pro Tour. What I mean is you're not, when you're doing a Magic Online draft, you're not testing the same as it would be in a Pro Tour house. I see it as Magic Online is where you learn how the cards work with each other and how they feel and what the archetypes are. It's not how you learn how to draft because even in old 8-4 cues, which is what we're relating this to, it's pack two, the guy next to you opens some rare that's worth five tickets or six tickets or seven tickets and there's a great unconverse deck you're just taking the six ticket card like that's just how a force have always worked so you're getting the inverse problem that you're talking about the hate drafting versus the rare drafting that when you're when you're testing in a pod like for the pro tour with your friends it's gonna look way different than a four is anyways i mean you're watching on coverage um you know a few pro tours ago where arlen court is being passed all the way around the table uh, to a player who gets it like seventh or something like that. It just doesn't happen on Magic Online and 8-4. It, it just doesn't. So I think that both of them are flawed when it comes to testing specifically for pod play the Pro Tour. And that's why I kind of just negate that argument from each other personally. And I start looking at 
availability, ease of draft, um, ability to grind reps. And, and you said at the start, like the future is leagues. And um, maybe, you know, maybe the single elimination thing isn't working because when I'm really looking at the numbers, that seems to be the only big difference. Like uh, the friendly draft leagues are hugely popular. Thousands of players are playing them, like 5,000 plus. But I, I just don't understand why, because you're playing a cross pod and you're hate drafting ninth pick cards, that's too much skewed one way when like rare drafting um money cards isn't skewing it in an equal inverse way i don't know i, I think you're you're overstating how much rare drafting goes on in those eight fours i i personally would take the uncommon every time and i know many many people who i play with and test with would take the uncommon every time i i mean like the weeks leading up to a pro tour in those eight fours I've certainly been in pods where it's like seven people who are going to be at the pro tour and, and one random guy. And maybe he's doing that or maybe he's not. Even when I wasn't qualified for a pro tour, I still know that the value of me winning the tournament in all, but like the most clear cut cases is I should take the card that's going to allow me to win the tournament, not take the rare. And like, usually there's one or two cards in each set where that's an exception. But oftentimes you want those two cards anyway. I mean, first pack certainly you want those one or two cards in your deck. So uh, I think that I think that the eight four rare drafting problem is overstated. Um, but I guess that that problem still kind of exists in the other form too, right? Like well, I, agree, which is why I don't think it's pro tour testing, right? Like I, I'm not looking at this as. My but there needs like to be some form of pro tour testing for draft on, on Magic Online. Like there needs to be a, a serious environment. And this probably isn't the best one. Like I, I think if you're asking me to choose between which serious environment I want, I want the standard 8-4 in a pod. We'll finish our draft right now. Old school drafting, just like we're going to do at the pro tour. And yeah, I guess for me, if, if we're talking about a format where you can play games available like the, the friendly drafts like if we're just assuming that you can play your three matches or one match or two matches without having to wait too long i would rather reps i i personally i found myself double and triple queuing sometimes to my detriment just to try to stagger to be able to get in the reps in my short amount of time so i won't leak for that because like i said i really do think that the magic online is more about getting used to the cards knowing you know, where cards kind of fall in their pick orders when you're noticing, oh, I thought Thriving Rhino was a fourth or fifth pick card, but really it's moving up to like a second and third pick. You, you start to see those trends on online drafts, whether they're leagues or not. Like the fact that you're not playing league doesn't change those rankings, I find. It changes the bottom half, like you mentioned. Um, so I, I'm totally pro, pro leagues. All right. That will do it. For episode four of First Strike, thank you guys for, for coming. And uh, shout-outs to Robert Lombardi, who's uh, watching us uh, via chat. Thanks for stopping in, Rob. <laughs> um, easy, everyone. Uh, we'll see you guys next week for episode five. Bye, everyone. Shout-out to Attila Fur.